1: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to Shore Two Hundred and Four. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Not like me. Oh man, full of man flu. You know what I mean? And, like, ladies, it, it's not the same, man. We suffer. It is shocking. Honestly, I just want to be like wrapped in pillars and comfort and just looked after. And I'm, I'm still having to carry on and it's not fair. Oh, man. Anyway, if I get through this show, it'll be a miracle. i tell you what's coming in today's show. We have a short story by Elizabeth Bear called Dolly. We have the fact Hugo review by Andy Thomaswick. Then we get into our main fiction, which is Secret Identity by Paul Cornell. There you go. That is today's show, two hundred and four. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So let's talk about Man Flu, shall we? Because oh it's come along. It came on about three days ago, and honestly, I'm, you know, six foot four, I must be the biggest, softest Geordie out there, do you know what I because mean? when it gets to me, it just floors us, and I'm just, honestly, Mel, Melly, will-, will you puff me pillows up, Melny, will you turn the remote, will you turn the telly over, I'm like a big sap, honestly, I'm popping, how, how is it like, and I'm not just, you know, a kind of male, female thing, but honestly, you just get on with it, you women, you know, it's just amazing. And I'm just like, I'm at this moment, honestly, sweating, shivers, I'm like cold, hot, you know, and I just can't function. And yet, you know what I mean, it's just, it just gets me wound up as well, be quite honest, because I'm like, everything stops, everything stops, you know what I mean? And I even like put out a Twitter post last night like I don't even I don't even think I could do the starship sofa. How Only will you change the channel? And then she like looks at us and I'm like she just get a life, Tony. You know <laughs> how lads, back us up, man. It's it's worse than anything. Anything. It's it's terrible this it's terrible. Anyway, jumping into Elizabeth Bear no known as, kind of in the science fiction terms, as Bear. This story, Dolly, came out in the Asimovs in January 2011 by, edited by, guess who, Sheila Williams as well. She knows her stuff. She was the winner of the 2005 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. 2008, she got the Hugo Award for Tideline, and we did a version of that, our very own Diane Severson narrated that story. And the 2009... The Hugo Award for Best Novelette for Shoggoths in Bloom. And actually, we did that one as well, and we did a cover as well. So do you know, go back, if you haven't listened to them stories, go back there and have a look. On Wikipedia, it says there that she's one of only five writers who have gone on to win multiple Hugo Awards for a fiction after winning this John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. The other ones being CJ Cherry, Austin Scott Card, Spider Robinson, and Ted Chang. So, great company there. This story is narrated by Rita DiBello, who's been a lawyer and a primary school teacher. But she says she much prefers her current role as a stay-at-home mum, who also reads and announces at the radio for the print Handicapped in Sydney. She lives with her equally sci-fi mad husband and two daughters. Rita, you'll give us some sympathy on this, will you? How I a mean, man flew. Honestly, I just want to say a big thank you to Rita for this. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Dolly. By Elizabeth Bear
2: On Sunday, when Dolly awakened, she had olive skin and black-brown hair that fell in waves to her hips. On Tuesday, when Dolly awakened, she was a redhead and fair. But on Thursday... On Thursday, her eyes were blue, her hair was as black as a crow's wing, and her hands were red with blood. In her black French maid's outfit, she was the only thing in the expensively appointed drawing room that was not winter white or antiqued gold. It was the sort of room you hired somebody else to clean. It was as immaculate as it was white. Immaculate and white, that is, except for the dead body of billionaire industrialist Clive Steele, and try to say that without sounding like a comic book, which lay at Dolly's feet, his viscera blossoming from him like macabre petals. That was how she looked when Rosamond Kirkbride found her, standing in a red stain in a white room like a thorn in a rose. Dolly had locked in position where her program ran out. As Ros dropped to one knee outside the border of the blood-saturated carpet, Dolly did not move. The room smelled like meat and bowels. Flies clustered thickly on the windows, but none had yet managed to get inside. No matter how hermetically sealed the house, it was only a matter of time. Like love, the flies found a way. Grunting with effort, Ros planted both green-gloved hands on the winter white woolen silk fibres and leaned over, getting her head between the dead guy and the doll. Blood spattered Dolly's silk stockings and her kitten-heeled boots, both the spray can dots of impact projection and the soaking arcs of a breached artery. More than one, given that Steele's heart lay trailing connective tissue beside his left hip. The crusted blood on Dolly's hands had twisted in ribbons down the underside of her forearms to her elbows, and from there dripped into the puddle on the floor. The android was not wearing undergarments. "'You staring up that girl's skirt, detective?' Roz was a big, plain woman, and out of shape in her forties. It took her a minute to heave herself back to her feet, careful not to touch the victim or the murder weapon yet she tied her straight light brown hair back before entering the scene, the ends tucked up in a net. The severity of the style made her square jaw into a lantern. Her eyes were almost as blue as the doll's. Is it a girl, Peter? Putting her hands on her knees, she pushed fully upright. She shoved a fist into her back and turned to the door. Peter King paused just inside, taking in the scene with a few critical sweeps of eyes so dark they didn't catch any light from the sunlight or the chandelier. His irises seemed to bleed pigment into the whites, warming them with swirls of ivory. In his black suit, his skin tanned almost to match, he might have been a heroically sized construction paper cut out against the white walls, white carpet, the white and gold marble top table that looked both antique and French. His blue paper booties rustled as he crossed the floor. Suicide, you think? Maybe if it was strangulation. Ros stepped aside so Peter could get a look at the body. He whistled, which was pretty much what she had done. Somebody hated him a lot. Hey, that's one of the new dollies, isn't it? Man, nice. He shook his head. Bet it cost more than my house. Imagine spending half a mil on a sex toy, Roz said, only to have it rip your liver out. She stepped back, arms folded. He probably didn't spend that much on her. His company makes accessory programs for them. Industry courtesy? Ros asked. Tax write-off. Test model. Peter was the department expert on home companions. He circled the room, taking it in from all angles. Soon the scene techs would be here with their cameras and their tweezers and their 3D scanner, turning the crime scene into a permanent virtual reality. In his capacity of soft forensics, Peter would go over Dolly's program and the medical examiner would most likely confirm that Steele's cause of death was exactly what it looked like. Something had punched through his abdominal wall and clawed his innards out. Doors were locked. Ros pursed her lips. Nobody heard the screaming. How long do you think you'd scream without any lungs? He sighed. You know, it never fails. The poor folks, nobody ever heard no screaming. And the rich folks, they've got no neighbours to hear scream. Everybody in this modern world lives alone. It was a beautiful Birmingham day behind the long silk draperies, the kind of mild and bright that spring mornings in Alabama excelled at. Peter craned his head back and looked up at the chandelier glistening in the dustless light. Its ornate curls had been spotlessly clean, before aerosolized blood on Steele's last breath misted them. Steele lived alone, she said, except for the robot. His cook found the body this morning. Last person to see him before that was his P.A. as he left the office last night. "'Lights on seemed to confirm that he was killed after dark. "'After dinner,' Ros said. "'After the cook went home for the night.' "'Peter kept prowling the room, peering behind draperies and furniture, "'looking in corners and crouching to lift up the dust ruffle on the couch. "'Well, I guess there won't be any question about the stomach contents.' "'Ros went through the pockets of the dead man's suit jacket, "'which was draped over the arm of a chair. "'Pocket computer and a folding knife, wallet with an RFID chip.' His house was on palm print, his car on voice rack. He carried no keys. Assuming the Emmy can find the stomach. Touché. He's got a cook but no housekeeper. I guess he trusts the android to clean but not cook. No taste buds. Peter straightened up, shaking his head. They can follow a recipe, but you won't get high art, Ros agreed, licking her lips. Outside, a car door slammed. Scene team? Emmy, Peter said, leaning over to peer out. "'Go on, let's get back to the house and pull the codes for this model.' "'All right,' Ross said, "'but I'm interrogating it. "'I know better than to leave you alone with a pretty girl.' "'Peter rolled his eyes as he followed her towards the door. "'I like em with a little more spunk than all that.' "'So, the new dolls,' Roz said in Peter's car, carefully casual. "'What's so special about them?' "'Man,' Peter answered, brow furrowing. "'Give me a sec.' Ros's car followed as they pulled away from the house on Balmoral Road, maintaining a careful distance from the bumper. Peter drove until they reached the parkway. Once they joined a caravan downtown, nose to bumper on the car ahead, he folded his hands in his lap and he let the lead car's autopilot take over. He said, What isn't? Real-time online editing, personality and physical, appearance, ethnicity, hair, all kinds of behaviour protocols. You name the kink, they've got a hack for it. So, if you knew somebody's kink, she said thoughtfully, knew it in particular, you could write an app for that, one that would appeal to your guy in specific. Peter's hands dropped to his lap, his head bobbing up and down enthusiastically, with a, pardon the expression, back door. Trojan horse, don't jilt a programmer for a sex machine. There's an app for that, he said, and she snorted. Two cases last year, worldwide, not common, but... Ros looked down at her hands. Some of these guys, she said, they program the dolls to scream. Peter had sensuous lips. When something upset him, those lips thinned and writhed like salted worms. I guess maybe it's a good thing they have a robot to take that out on. Unless the fantasy stops being enough. Rosa's voice was flat without judgment. Sunlight fell warm through the windshield. What do you know about the larval stage of serial rapists, serial killers? You mean, what if pretend pain stops doing it for them? What if the appearance of pain is no longer enough? She nodded, worrying a hangnail on her thumb. The nitrile gloves dried out your hands. They used to cut up paper porn magazines. His broad shoulders rose and fell, his suit catching wrinkles against the car seat when they came back down. They'll get their fantasies somewhere. I guess so. She put her thumb in her mouth to stop the bleeding, a thick red bead that welled up where she'd torn the cuticle. Her own saliva stung. Sitting in the cheap office chair Ros had docked along the short edge of her desk, Dolly slowly lifted her chin. She blinked. She smiled. "'Law enforcement override code accepted,' she had a little girl Marilyn voice. "'How may I help you, Detective Kirkbride?' "'We're investigating the murder of Clive Steele,' Ros said with a glance up to Peter's round face. He stood behind Dolly with a wireless scanner, and an air of concentration. Your contract holder of record. I am at your service. If Dolly were a real girl, the bare skin of her thighs would have been sticking to the recycled upholstery of that office chair, but her realistically engineered skin was breathable polymer. She didn't sweat unless you told her to, and she probably didn't stick to cheap chairs. Evidence suggests that you were used as the murder weapon. Roz steepled her hands on her blotter. We will need access to your software update records and your memory files. Do you have a warrant? Her voice was not stiff or robotic at all, but warm, human. Even in disposing of legal niceties, it had a warm, confiding quality. Silently, Peter transmitted it. Dolly blinked twice while processing the data, a sort of status bar, something to let you know the thing wasn't hung. We also have a warrant to examine you for DNA trace evidence, Roz said. "'Dolly smiled, her raven hair breaking perfectly around her narrow shoulders. "'You may be assured of my cooperation.' "'Peter led her into one of the interrogation rooms "'where the operation could be recorded. "'With the help of an evidence tech, he undressed Dolly, "'bagged her clothes as evidence, brushed her down onto a sheet of paper, "'combed her polymer hair and swabbed her polymer skin. "'He swabbed her orifices and scraped under her nails. "'Roz stood by, arms folded, a necessary witness.' Dolly accepted it all impassively, moving as directed and otherwise standing like a caryatid. Her engineered body was frankly sexless in its perfection. Belly flat, hips and arse like an inverted heart, breasts floating cartoonishly beside a defined ribcage. Apparently, Steele had liked them skinny. So much for pulchritudinousness, Ros muttered to Peter when their backs were to the doll. He glanced over his shoulder. The doll didn't have feelings to hurt, but she looked so much like a person it was hard to remember to treat her as something else. ''I think you mean voluptuousness,'' he said. ''It is a little too good to be true, isn't it?'' ''If you would prefer different proportions,'' Dolly said, ''my chassis is adaptable to a range of forms.'' ''Thank you,'' Peter said. ''That won't be necessary.'' Otherwise immobile, Dolly smiled. ''Are you interested in science, Detective King?'' There is an article in Nature this week on advances in the polymerase chain reaction used for replicating DNA. It's possible that within five years, forensic and medical DNA analysis will become significantly cheaper and faster. Her face remained stoic, but Dolly's voice grew animated as she spoke. Even enthusiastic, it was an utterly convincing and engaging effect. Apparently, Clive Steele had programmed his sex robot to discourse on molecular biology with verve and enthusiasm. "'Why don't I ever find the guys who like smart women?' Ros said. Peter winked with the side of his face that faced away from the companion. "'They're all dead.' A few hours after Peter and the tech had finished processing Dolly for trace evidence and Peter had started downloading her files... Ros left her parser software humming away at Steele's financials and poked her head in to check on the robot and the cop. The techs must have gotten what they needed from Dolly's hands because she had washed them. As she sat beside Peter's workstation, a cable plugged behind her left ear, she cleaned her lifelike polymer fingernails meticulously with a file, dropping the scrapings into an evidence bag. Sure you want to give the prisoner a weapon, Peter? Ros shut the ancient wooden door behind her. Dolly looked up, as if to see if she was being addressed, but made no response. She don't need it, he said. Besides, whatever she had in her wiped itself completely after it ran. Not much damage to her core personality, but there are some memory gaps. I'm going to compare them to the backups once we get those from the scene team. Memory gaps? Like the crime, Roz guessed. And something around the time the Trojan was installed? Dolly blinked her long-lashed blue eyes languorously. Peter patted her on the shoulder and said, "'Whoever did it is a pretty good cracker. "'He didn't just wipe. "'He patterned her memories and overwrote the gaps, "'like using a clone tool to Photoshop somebody you don't like out of a picture. "'Her days must be pretty repetitive,' Ros said. "'How'd you pick that out?' "'Calendar.' Peter puffed up a little smug. "'She don't do the same housekeeping work every day. "'There's a Monday schedule and a Wednesday schedule and, well, "'I found where the pattern didn't match. And "'There's a funny thing. "'Watch this.' He waved vaguely at a display panel. It lit up, showing Dolly in her black-and-white uniform, vacuuming. House camera, Peter explained. She's plugged into steel security system, like a guard dog with perfect hair. Whoever performed the hack also edited the external webcam feeds that mirror to the companion's memories. How hard is that? Not any harder than cloning over a files, but you have to know to look for them. So, it's confirmation that our perp knows his or her way around a line of code. What have you got? Rose shrugged. "'Steel had a lot of money, which means a lot of enemies, "'and he did not have a lot of human contact. "'Not for years now. "'I've started calling in known associates for interviews, "'but unless they surprise me, "'I think we're looking at a crime of profit, "'not crime of passion.' "'Having finished with a nail file, "'Dolly wiped it on her prison smock "'and laid it down on Peter's blotter, "'beside the cup of ink and light pens. "'Peter swept it into the drawer. "'So we're probably not after the genius programmer lover "'he dumped for a robot.' Pity, I like the poetic justice and that. Dolly blinked, lips parting, but seemed to decide that Peter's comment had not been directed at her. Still, she drew in air. Could you call it a breath? And said, It is my duty to help find my contract holder's killer. Ros lowered her voice. You'd think they'd pull them off the market. Like they pull cars whenever one crashes? The world ain't perfect. Or do that robot laws thing everybody used to Twitter on about. Whatever a positronic brain is, we don't have it. Asimov's fictional robots were self-aware. Dolly's neurons are binary, as we used to think human neurons were. She doesn't have the nuanced neurochemistry of even, say, a cat. Peter popped his collar smooth with his thumbs. A doll can't want. It can't make moral judgments any more than your car can. Anyway, if we could do that, they wouldn't be very useful for home defence. Oh, incidentally, the sex protocols in this one are almost painfully vanilla. Really? Peter nodded. Ros rubbed a scuff mark on the tile with her shoe. So, given he didn't like anything challenging, why would he have a dolly when he could have had any woman he wanted? There's never any drama, no pain, no disappointment, just comfort, the perfect helpmeet, with infinite variety. And you never have to worry about what she wants or likes in bed. Peter smiled. The perfect woman for a narcissist. The interviews proved unproductive but Ros didn't leave the station house until after ten. Spring mornings might be warm, but once the sun went down, a cool breeze sprang up, ruffling the hair she'd finally remembered to pull from its ponytail as she walked out the door. Ros's green plug-in was still parked beside Peter's. It booted as she walked towards it, headlights flickering on, power probe retracting. The driver's side door swung open as her RFID chip came within range. She slipped inside and let it buckle her in. Home, she said. And dinner. The car messaged ahead as it pulled smoothly from the parking spot. Ros let the autopilot handle the driving. It was less snappy than human control, but as tired as she was, eyelids burning and heavy, it was safer. Whatever Peter had said about cars crashing, Roses delivered her safe to her driveway. Her house let her in with a key. She had decent security, but it was the old-fashioned kind, and the smell of boiling pasta and toasting garlic bread wafted past as she opened it. "'Sven?' she called, locking herself inside. His even voice responded, "'I'm in the kitchen.' She left her shoes by the door and followed her nose through the cheaply furnished living room. Sven was cooking shirtless, and she could see the repaired patches along his spine where his skin had grown brittle and cracked with age. He turned and greeted her with a smile. "'Bad day?' "'Somebody's dead again,' she said. He put the wooden spoon down on the rest.' "'How does that make you feel, that somebody's dead?' "'He didn't have a lot of emotional range, but that was okay. "'She needed something steadying in her life. "'She came to him and rested her head against his warm chest. "'He draped one arm around her shoulders "'and she leaned into him, breathing deep. "'Like I have work to do.' "'Do it tomorrow,' he said. "'You will feel better once you eat and rest.' Peter must have slept in a ready-room cot because when Ros arrived at the house before 6am he had on the same trousers and a different shirt and he was already armpit deep in coffee and Dolly's files. Dolly herself was parked in the corner, at ease and online, but in rest mode. Or so she seemed until Ros entered the room and Dolly's eyes tracked. "'Good morning, Detective Kirkbride,' Dolly said. "'Would you like some coffee or a piece of fruit?' "'No, thank you.' "'Ros swung Peter's spare chair around and dropped into it. "'An electric air permeated the room, the feeling of anticipation. "'To Peter, Ros said, "'Fruit?' "'Dolly believes in a healthy diet,' he said, "'nudging a napkin on his desk that supported a half-eaten satsuma. "'She'll have the whole house cleaned up in no time. "'We've been talking about literature.' "'Ros spun the chair so she could keep both Peter and Dolly "'in her peripheral vision. "'Literature?' Poetry, Dolly said. Detective King mentioned poetic justice yesterday afternoon. Ros stared at Peter. Dolly likes poetry. Steele really did like him smart. That's not all Dolly likes. Peter triggered his panel again. Remember this? It was the cleaning sequence from the previous day, the sound of the central vacuum system rising and falling as Dolly lifted the brush and set it down again. Ros raised her eyebrows. Peter held up a hand. Wait for it. Turns out there's a second audio track. Another waggle of his fingers and the cramped office filled with sound. Music. Improvisational jazz. Intricate and weird. Dolly was listening to that inside her head while she was vacuuming, Peter said. Ros touched her fingertips to each other, the whole assemblage to her lips. Dolly? Yes, Detective Kirkbride? "'Why do you listen to music?' "'Because I enjoy it.' "'Ros let her hand fall to her chest, "'pushing her blouse against the skin below the collarbones. "'Ros said, "'Did you enjoy your work at Mr Steele's house?' "'I was expected to enjoy it,' Dolly said, "'and Ros glanced at Peter, cold all up her spine. A "'Classic evasion, "'just the sort of thing a home companion's conversational algorithms "'should not be able to produce.' Across his desk, Peter was nodding. Yes. Dolly turned at the sound of his voice. Are you interested in music, Detective Kirkbride? I'd love to talk with you about it sometime. Are you interested in poetry? Today I was reading... Mother of God, Ros mouthed. Yes, Peter said. Dolly, wait here, please. Detective Kirkbride and I need to talk in the hall. My pleasure, Detective King, said the companion. She killed him, Roz said. She killed him and wiped her own memory of the act. A doll's got to know her own code, right? Peter leaned against the wall by the men's room door, arms folded, forearms muscular under rolled-up sleeves. That's hasty. And you believe it too. He shrugged. There's a rep from Venus Consolidated in Interview for right now. I'll say we go talk to him. The rep's name was Doug Jarvis. He was actually a vice president of public relations and even though he was an American, he'd been flown in overnight from Rio for the express purpose of talking to Peter and Ros. I guess they're taking this seriously. Peter gave her a sideways glance. Wouldn't you? Jarvis got up as they came into the room, extending a good handshake across the table. There were introductions and Ros made sure he got a coffee. He was a white man on the steep side of 50 with mousy hair the same colour as Ros's and a jaw like a boxer dogs. When they were all seated again, Ross said, So tell me a little bit about the murder weapon. How did Clive Steele wind up owning a, what, experimental model? Jarvis started shaking his head before she was halfway through, but he waited for her to finish the sentence. It's a production model, or will be. The one Steele had was an alpha test, one of the first three built. We plan to start full-scale production in June, but you must understand the Venus doesn't sell a home companion, detective. We offer a contract. I understand that you hold one. Um, I have a housekeeper, she said, ignoring Peter's sideways glance. He wouldn't say anything in front of the witness, but she would be in for it in the locker room. An older model, Jarvis smiled. "'Naturally, we want to know everything we can about an individual "'involved in a case so potentially explosive for our company. "'We researched you and your partner. "'Are you satisfied with our product?' "'He makes pretty good garlic bread.' "'She cleared her throat, reasserting control of the interview. "'What happens to a dolly that's returned? "'If its contract is up or it's replaced with a newer model?' "'He flinched at the slang term as if it offended him. "'Some are obsoleted out of service.' "'Some are refurbished and go out on another contract. "'Your unit is on its fourth placement, for example.' "'So what happens to the owner preferences at that time?' "'Reset to factory standard,' he said. "'Peter's fingers rippled silently on the tabletop,' Ros said. "'Isn't that cruel? A kind of murder?' "'Oh, no!' Java sat back, appearing genuinely shocked. "'A home companion has no sense of I. "'It has no identity. It's an object.' "'Naturally, you become attached. "'People become attached to dolls, to stuffed animals, to automobiles. "'It's a natural aspect of the human psyche.' Ros hummed encouragement, but Jarvis seemed to be done.' "'Peter asked, "'Is there any reason why a companion would wish to listen to music?' "'That provoked enthusiastic head-shaking. "'No, it doesn't get bored. "'It's a tool, it's a toy. "'A companion does not require an enriched environment.' It's not a dog or an octopus. You can store it in a closet when it's not working. I see, Ross said. Even an advanced model like Mr. Steele's? Well, absolutely, Jarvis said. Does your entertainment center play shooter games to amuse itself while you sleep? I'm not sure, Ross said. I'm asleep. So when Dolly's returned to you, she'll be scrubbed? Normally, she would be scrubbed and released, yes. Jarvis hesitated. Given her colorful history, however. Yes, Ros said. I see. With no sign of nervousness or calculation, Jarvis said, When do you expect you'll be done with Mr. Steele's companion? My company, of course, is eager to assist in your investigations, but we must stress that she is our corporate property and quite valuable. Ros stood, Peter a shadow second after her. That depends if it goes to trial, Mr. Jarvis. After all, she's either physical evidence or a material witness. "'All the killer,' Peter said in the hall as his handset began emitting the DNA lab's distinctive beep. Ros's went off a second later, but she just hit the silence. Peter already had his open. "'No genetic material,' he said. "'Too bad.' If there had been DNA other than Clive Steele's, the lab could have done a forensic genetic assay and come back with a general description of the murderer.' General, because environment also had an effect. Peter bit his lip. If she did it, she won't be the last one. If she's the murder weapon, she'll be wiped and resold. If she's the murderer... Can an android stand trial? It can if it's a person. And if she's a person, she should get off. Battered woman syndrome. She was enslaved and sexually exploited. Humiliated. She killed him to stop repeated rapes. But if she's a machine... She's a machine... Ros closed her eyes. Peter brushed the back of a hand against her arm. Vanilla rape is still rape. Do you object to her getting off? No, Ros smiled harshly. And think of the lawsuit that weasel Jarvis will have in his lap. She should get off, but she won't. Peter turned his head. If she were a human being, she'd have even odds. But she's a machine. Where's she going to get a jury of her peers? The silence fell where he left it and dragged between them like a chain. Ros had to nerve herself to break it. Peter. You? You show him out, she said. I'm going to go talk to Dolly. He looked at her for a long time before he nodded. She won't get a sympathetic jury if you can even find a judge that will hear it. Careers have been buried for less. I know, Ros said. Self-defence, Peter said. We don't have to charge. "'No judge, no judicial precedent,' Ros said. "'She goes back, she gets wiped and resold. "'Ethics aside, that's a ticking bomb.' "'Peter nodded. "'He waited until he was sure she already knew what he was going to say "'before he finished the thought. "'She could cop.' "'She could cop,' Ros agreed. "'Call the DA.' "'She kept walking as Peter turned away.' "'Dolly stood in Peter's office where Peter had left her.' and you could not have proved her eyes had blinked in the interim. They blinked when Roz came into the room, though, blinked and the perfect and perfectly blank oval face turned to regard Ros. It was not a human face, for a moment not even a mask, washed with facsimile emotions. It was just a thing. Dolly did not greet Ros. She did not extend herself to play the perfect hostess. She simply watched, expressionless, immobile after that first blink. Her eyes saw nothing. They were cosmetic. Dolly navigated the world through far more sophisticated sensory systems than a pair of visible light cameras. Either you're the murder weapon, Ross said, and you will be wiped and repurposed, or you are the murderer and you will stand trial. I do not wish to be wiped, Dolly said. If I stand trial, will I go to jail? If a court will hear it, Ross said, Yes, you will probably go to jail, or be disassembled. Alternately, my partner and I are prepared to release you on grounds of self-defence. In that case, Dolly said, the law states that I am the property of Venus Consolidated. The law does. Ros waited. Dolly, who was not supposed to be programmed to play psychological pressure games, waited also. Peaceful, unblinking. "'no longer making the attempt to pass for human,' Ros said. "'There is a fourth alternative. You could confess.' "'Dolly's entire programmed purpose was reading the emotional state "'and unspoken intentions of people, her lips curved in understanding. "'What happens if I confess?' "'Ros's heart beat faster. "'Do you wish to?' "'Will it benefit me?' "'It might.' Ros said. Detective King has been in touch with the DA, and she likes a good media event as much as the next guy. Make no mistake, this will be that. I understand. The situation you were placed in by Mr Steele could be a basis for lenience. You would not have to face a jury trial, and a, a judge might be convinced to treat you as, well, as a person. Also, a confession might be seen as evidence of contrition, "'Possession is oversold, you know. "'It's precedent that's nine-tenths of the law. "'There are, of course, risks.' "'I would like to request a lawyer,' Dolly said. "'Ros took a breath. "'That might change the world. "'We'll proceed as if that were your legal right, then.' "'Ros's house let her in with her key, "'and the smell of roasted sausage and baking potatoes wafted past. "'Zven,' she called, locking herself inside, "'His even voice responded, "'I'm in the kitchen.' "'She left her shoes in the hall "'and followed her nose through the cheaply furnished living room, "'as different from Steele's white wasteland "'as anything bounded by four walls could be. "'Her feet did not sink deeply into this carpet, "'but skipped along atop it like stones. "'It was clean, though, and that was Fenn's doing, "'and she was not coming home to an empty house, "'and that was his doing too. "'He was cooking, shirtless.' HE TURNED AND GREETED HER WITH A SMILE. BAD DAY. NOBODY DIED, SHE SAID, YET. HE PUT THE WOODEN SPOON DOWN ON THE REST. HOW DOES THAT MAKE YOU FEEL, THAT NOBODY HAS DIED YET? HOPEFUL, SHE SAID. IT'S GOOD THAT YOU'RE HOPEFUL, HE SAID. WOULD YOU LIKE YOUR DINNER? DO YOU LIKE MUSIC, SVEN? I COULD PUT ON SOME MUSIC IF YOU LIKE. WHAT DO YOU WANT TO HEAR? Anything. It would be something off her favorites playlist, chosen by random numbers. As it swelled in the background, Sven picked up the spoon. Sven? Yes, Rosamund. Put the spoon down, please, and come and dance with me. I do not know how to dance. I'll buy you a program, she said, if you'd like that. But right now, just come put your arms around me and pretend. Whatever you want. He said.
1: There you go, Dumaget. As, as usual, copyright is our Elizabeth's. Thank you, Elizabeth, very much. Next up is Andy Thomaswick with his Hugo review. Andy,
3: hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Hugo review. My name's Andy Thomaswick, and this week I'll be covering the Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Let me start off by telling a somewhat embarrassing story of a past sci-fi reading experience of mine. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I'm a completionist, and have been for a long time. When I first started reading the Star Wars novels, I decided it would be a good idea to tackle them chronologically in that universe. So I looked up a timeline and went down to my local library to pick up the book that dated farthest back in George Lucas' vision. When I approached the librarian to request the book, she felt it was necessary to let me know that it was for kids. I was right at that awkward age when being told that I was a kid was the last thing that I wanted. She evidently realized that, and decided that I had no business reading kids' books, and as if to rectify her, or my, faux pas, she immediately started grabbing every other science fiction book she could find, especially ones that had nothing to do with Star Wars. I never did get that book that I was looking for, nor have I finished the Star Wars series, and the whole ordeal left a bad taste in my mouth for kids' books for a long time. That is, until I read the Graveyard Book. A 300-page novel that opens with a murder scene might not seem like much of a kid's book. But despite the length and the immediate shock value, which isn't graphic whatsoever, this book is undeniably one that kids will enjoy. In addition to the Hugo, it won the Newbery Award for Best Children's Novel of the Year. Being a kid's book does make it significantly different from the other books that I'll be reviewing in this series. Though 300 pages sounds like a lot, it is truly easy reading, with large font and illustrations, making it one of only two winners that I've read so far that has had them. The illustrations are very well done, and effectively contrast Nobody Owens, the book's main character and the only survivor of the massacre in the first chapter, with the rest of the book's otherworldly characters, who inhabit a graveyard where the toddling Bod, as he's known, wandered after his entire family was killed by the man named Jack. The denizens of the underworld take him in and decide to protect him in the world of the graveyard. The rest of the book tells of Bod's adventures with both the living and the dead while learning his freedom of the graveyard powers that allow him, despite his corporeal hindrance, to do all the standard ghostly things like fading and dream-haunting. If you're imagining monkeys and bananas right now, you're not too far off. The Jungle Book, written by Rudyard Kipling in 1894, is a major inspiration of the novel. Just replace the monkeys with ghosts and put a serial killer in place of the snake and you have a strikingly similar story. The way the plot flows is slightly different, however. Each chapter in the Graveyard Book is about an event that takes place two years after the previous one. So you see Bod at age 2 all the way up through age 12. Each of the chapters could be its own self-contained story, and in fact, one of them which was published separately before the novel itself, won the Best Novelette Locust Award in 2008. Despite the fact that they all could stand on their own, Gaiman ties all the different stories together well, especially at the climax of the novel. The characters are one of the tools that Gaiman uses to tie the novel together, and they are a diverse bunch. They range from Bod's adopted parents, the Owenses, who want nothing more than to raise a child of their own, even if that child happens to be living, to Liza, a witch who was thrown in an unmarked grave and truly desires nothing more than to be remembered. Bod doesn't only have to deal with the dead, though. Silas, his guardian, is neither living nor dead, and serves as the boy's teacher and provider. Bod even gets the pleasure of meeting another living girl, who also happens to think he's imaginary. The majority of the characters are richly developed, despite the fact that they would seem entirely alien to most of the living. However, a few of Salus's compatriots that come to be central to the plot of the story are barely developed whatsoever. Most strangely, the villains of the story are lacking in robustness and rely on a vague prophecy to justify their desire to kill Bod and all of his family. The funny thing is, I didn't even notice that point until I had finished reading the book and started reading the reviews. I'm normally a stickler for not using a deus ex machina a cop out of a storyline, but Gaiman managed to pull a fast one on me. In this case, it might even be excused as being intentional, as the book is written for children who might not enjoy a more in-depth analysis of a psychopath in their books. The writing skirts around such morbid thoughts, in large part because the story is told from the perspective of Bod himself, who seems indefatigable in his optimism and energy, that is, until he goes to public school. Admittedly, public schools are enough to sap the life out of most kids, but Gaiman portrays Bod's experience in a place that is supposed to be enjoyed as an absolute nightmare, on par with the rest of the horrors that befall him throughout the book. It doesn't seem like society needs to use literature to inspire children to hate school even more than they already do, though. Luckily, most of Bod's time is spent outside that brick-and-mortar cube, exploring gold caves with werewolves and confronting an ancient spirit waiting for its master. As one reviewer put it, it would be easy to imagine a youngster wanting to wander around the graveyard in England the story was based in, trying to find unmarked witches' gravestones and sitting around on benches and trees waiting for one of the book's characters to pop up. And that is the true strength of the story. Discrediting Haley Joel Osment's advice, this book makes it okay to see dead people, just as long as none of their names are jack. That's it for this edition of the Hugo Review. Next time we'll be covering the Yiddish Policeman's Union by an author from my hometown and alma mater, Michael Chabon. Thanks for listening. Now don't let any librarians stop you from reading the Graveyard Book.
1: What I'm liking about Andy's work is the the older it gets, or, you know, kind of the more it goes back into the history of the Hugo, that's when it gets exciting for me because these books, that's the kind of current ones, you know, you you know about them and you know what's going on with them. You might not have read them, but it's the ones where, you know, in a few years you think, oh, right, that one. And then Andy's going to, you know, delve deep into that. That's what I'm looking forward to. So, Andy, keep it up, sir. Next up is the main fiction and it's Secret Identity by Paul Cornell i give you a little heads up for oh, Mr. Paul Cornell. He's a year younger than me. <laughs> British writer, best known for. Actually, he's done all sorts to be quite, and I like to get Paul on the show to be quite honest, and get him on Sofanos as well to kind of dig deep into his life. But he's, he's wrote Doctor Who fiction, but he's also wrote Robin, for Robin Hood, Prime Evil... Casualty, Holby City and Coronation. I never knew that to be quite honest. He writes a lot of for the British comics as well and he does Marvel comics and DC comics in America. Wow, not bad that eh. Novels he's had out is The Uninvited which came out in 1997, Something More 2001 and British Summertime 2002. This story came out in 2010 and it was from the, and it was from the Lou Anders anthology Masked which was all kind of superhero stories. And I'll give you some of the writers there. Chris Robertson, Stephen Baxter, Mike Carey, and Ian MacDonald, to name but a few. This story is narrated by the fantastic MCL from MCL Studios. I haven't actually spoken, well, I've spoken with Martin a while. Martin's the guy, if you know, who did the, when we did the kind of narrators' workshop, Martin's the one who's well into kind of... The audition, Adobe Audition stuff, and, and taught everyone how to, to use that. And it's just got a fantastic voice, do you know what I mean? And he does, If it's Martin who actually does the, the sofa notes, the, the tune, the, the intro and the outro as well, do you know what I mean? As we delve into? Oh, it's so smutty, it's just foul, isn't it? Anyway, the Starship Soba is very proud to present Secret Identity by Paul Cornell.
0: Jim Ashton heard the magic explosions. So-called all of Manto's. He tried to look surprised. He put down his pint, spun around, looking out across the canal, pretending he didn't know what that was. "'Look at Lois Lane,' said Hugh, sitting beside him. He, typically, hadn't flinched at the noise. "'What?' Jim turned back from the window, annoyed at his grin." Is Chris really going to come out of the loo and sit back down here? Come on, it's all right. If anyone can keep a secret, this lot can. You reckon? And, he quickly added, I don't know what you're on about. Hugh lowered his voice. Chris is the Manchester Guardian. Everyone knows they're the same bloke. Jim found himself wearing a sad smile as the sound of another explosion echoed over the water. Do they? Do they? The Guardian caught the second of Top Hat's magic spikes, a nanosecond after he'd thrown it, clenched his fist on it, and dumped the energy into the atomic void in his palm. This magic villain really could do anything, change time and space. The first throw had caught him off guard, spun him around in a whiplash of colours, but now he was closing on his opponent, flashing through the air towards him as their enhanced senses calculated the impact. "'He had a second to see the shocked expression on the top hat's face. "'He was there faster. His senses were better. "'He deflected the bolt intended for his head up into the sky. "'He wouldn't let it hit Canal Street. "'Enough of this!' "'He broke through the top hat's magical shields with one punch. "'He grabbed the magician by the collar and slapped the hat off his head. "'It went spiralling down into the lights of the bars and restaurants along the canal.' The top hat tried to say something, his hands flailing, his expression demanding mercy. Now he was powerless. He knew where the Guardian would send him. His eyes reflected the moon. The Guardian grabbed him with both hands and spun three times until he was at maximum magical velocity. He released the magician straight at the moon. He blazed a sudden bright line into the stratosphere, a reverse meteor faster than escape velocity. He'd hit the lunar surface in about three days. Without his hat to grant the wishes that gave him his powers, this time it might actually take him a while to escape. The Guardian glanced down and used his magical vision to find the hat. A group of students had grabbed it, were laughing about it, trying it on. Gay lads from the uni, a couple of fag-hags with them. They'd been queuing outside one of the bars while watching the battle. As Mancunians had always watched the magic hero fights in their skies, treating them like the weather. The group of straight sightseers in front of them had also been watching, but now they'd gone back to arguing with the doorman. That bar had a door policy of quizzing people who wanted to get in, trying to enforce gaze only. The Guardian didn't understand how people could be like that. With a thought and a rainbow blur, he was there. He took the hat from the kid who was holding it. Dangerous magic. Would you please let me deal with that, sir? Oh, sorry. The kids were beaming at him. Bloody hell, it's you. It is. He'll tell you, one of the girls from the party by the door called out. We're mates of his. She gestured over her shoulder at the party of grinning straight lads with her. Tell him we're all very, very gay. The kid who'd given the guardian the hat looked at him with a twinkle in his eye. "'Come on!' The Guardian turned to tall Ben, who was the one who stood at the door of this place on busy nights now, asking the embarrassing questions, with a heavy bouncer on either side of him. Ben met his gaze. The Guardian had never liked Ben, even from before Ben had licence to not just tell people they weren't gay, but that they weren't gay enough.' "'What can I do for you, hero of all gay people?' tall Ben asked. "'The Guardian gestured to the girl and her boozed-up mates. "'You've humiliated them enough.' "'No, mate, I have just started. "'That lot just want to have a look at what they'll never have. "'They want to point and laugh.' The Guardian frowned, the frown of a man impatient with debate. Ben's clothes were suddenly ruffled by a blur of air, and there was the concussive noise of the door opening and closing too fast to see, and the group of kids had vanished inside. And the Guardian was back, his hands behind his back, whistling nonchalantly. The kids from the uni tried to hide that they were laughing. Ben looked at the bouncers, and they tiredly headed inside to find the straight boys. "'Guardian, or should I say Chris Rackham?' "'The Guardian found himself taking a step towards the man, "'provoked, despite himself. "'I am not!' all oh, right, it's different when it's you being pointed at. "'Whatever. "'You do that again and you're barred, "'whatever you're calling yourself.' "'And he let the party from the uni in, "'just to show he was on the side of good. "'The Guardian stood sizing the man up, "'feeling lost in a way which didn't suit the costume he wore.' It was then he heard the noise. The applause his magic hearing had picked up came from the tower of the old Refuge Assurance building. It was the sound, across the city, of one woman clapping. "'Well done! Bravo!' "'She had placed her ivory staff to jut out from a ledge on the tower "'and was standing on it like a gymnast, one foot in front of the other. "'She was wearing her long white coat and mask, "'her form-fitting white costume under it, "'black hair tumbling down her back, very red lipstick and nails. "'Her voice was upper-class, unashamed, committed. "'The Guardian grasped all of this,' in one magic glance, and then he was standing in the air in front of her, his arms folded, aware of every car and individual in the street below, every face looking out of every hotel room window, aware of them in a distant way, much more aware of her.
2: Bravo,
0: she said. Well handled there. The white candle was a thief, who stole art, mostly from gay men's houses, probably more because of her area of operations than anything else, through magical means. She imagined herself to be doing nothing particularly wrong. The Guardian disagreed. They'd crossed paths three times before. She'd somehow avoided capture every time. This is daring, he said, even for you. "'I couldn't help but applaud your part in that little confrontation,' she said. "'I can tell, you see, with my magic gaydar.' "'What?' "'Whatever that rainbow costume of yours says, you're one of us, darling.' The Guardian raised an eyebrow and stepped forward to confront her. Jim woke up at the sound of the curtain being pushed back, the familiar slide of the window closing in the spare room, the soft concussion of air that marked the change. Chris went to the bathroom, then came into the bedroom. He looked thinner than ever. Jim was sure he'd dropped half a stone in the last three weeks, ever since this nonsense had started. It was all the mighty Sphinx's fault. If he hadn't come out as really being that tiny librarian, maybe nobody would have started linking Chris, a man with a runner's physique, with the insanely muscled Guardian. The shape of their face was different, even, because of the muscles – But if you had the thought in your head, and you had a good look, and of course the Guardian would never wear a mask. Chris was still wearing his suit, because they'd gone for a pint after work, before that bloke with the app had popped up again. He took off the jacket and plonked it on the hanger, tried to smooth out the creases. How'd it go? Bang, zoom, and to the moon, as bloody usual. I got the app this time, he held it up and put it down on the side table yeah that that's what people were saying sounds like you were hard on ben yeah suppose i was couldn't help it I, i see why that place does it i'd feel the same if a bunch of twats came in and started taking the piss me too chris had finished undressing and now he got into bed i kind of agree with it even i was chosen to be the guardian by the coven because i'm all about well letting people be who they are but the Guardian takes that right up to 11. He's very focused. More straightforward, yeah. I mean, he doesn't really do complexity. Right. Jim let himself lie with his head on Chris's chest, like always. But it didn't feel good now. He wanted to get to the point. So, so then what did you do after Tall Ben? I was kind of thinking you'd be here when I got back. Benefit of the doubt, he wasn't going to be the jealous one. The thought crossed his mind that he was being cruel anyway, that it would have been easier on Chris to yell at him. Did something else happen? Kind of. What? A long silence. Oh, God. Jim found himself controlling his breathing. It's just time. Just move on through time. Get to the tough bit. You're strong enough to deal. You know you are. White candle? Jim closed his eyes again. The Guardian had stepped onto the roof and moved carefully closer to her. He could smell her perfume. It was trying to intoxicate him, to suggest all kinds of drama and exoticism about her, to mentally take him to the bedroom mirror where she put it on. He stopped himself. Yes, it was indeed just perfume. What was wrong with him? "'He couldn't sense any magic, making him look into her face, "'making him concentrate on her eyes and mouth, "'making him consider how soft her hair was, "'making his eyes glimpse her breasts and the shape of her pelvis. "'There was no such magic coming from her, "'and there hadn't been since the last time they'd met either. "'He knew what was wrong with him, and it was very wrong.' He knew everything was simple when you took away the evasions and lies that made life complicated. But he was not what he was supposed to be. He felt like punching her into the next building for making him feel like this. Uh, But that would be wrong, too. "'How about you don't run away for once?' he asked. "'How about you really take me on?' "'I could say the same,' her voice was upper-class, brittle.' He could imagine the noises she'd make. (laughs) He killed the thought. And she'd suddenly laughed and thrown herself off the building. And he sped after her. She danced across the rooftops, throwing glamours and dazzles and feints expertly behind her, some of which he walked through, some of which he had to smash aside, some of which he had to suddenly duck because otherwise they'd have had him. A clever pattern of harmlessness, then punch, varying always uncertainly deadly. He ducked, 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 chose a moment when she'd stopping, throwing and had to leap, was in midair, and flashed past her. He pulled the air carpet from under her and heard the fragments of the levitation spell falling, singing into the void over Oxford Road. Crowds were rushing out onto the pavement from the Corner House Bar and the BBC and the hotels. He caught her before she hit the ground. She lay there in the crook of his arm, curled like a pussycat, an unperturbed smile on her big mouth. ''If I've done something wrong, then you should punish me.'' And then she kissed him. And he let her. ''Oh, stop, stop, right there!'' Jim was sitting up, the quilt pulled defensively around him. ''Did she really say that? I mean, that's the sort of thing you like, isn't it? Or are these your smutty fantasies?'' ''Not mine.'' ''Bollocks! If it's not you, how come I recognised you three years back?'' That's why we're together, remember, because I saw through your clever disguise and a pair of glasses. But you're saying he's not you, even though he looks just like you in a Charles Atlas before and after? hmm? How come you remember everything he does then? How come you can do a little bit of detective work as you and then change into him? And I don't know. I've got different opinions to him. If you act different when you're him, maybe that's just because you with muscles knows he can finally get the girl, while mild-mannered you has to settle for because the gays are so much less about the body beautiful than girls are. Well, tell me then. Tell me how you in a costume and muscles is different to you now to the extent where it's okay if I didn't say it was okay. Even he doesn't think it's okay. You don't normally say you and him up until now it was all i saved him and i fought that villain because i was proud of it up till now jim found himself silent in the face of that he didn't want to lose himself by matching that anger he didn't want to lose this that was why this was so terrible But damn it, he needed something, something to balance this huge, gaping harm that, in that calm, laid-back voice of his, Chris had just, Beer, he said. Now. They went into the kitchen and sat down with a beer each and didn't say anything until they'd each thrown it back and got another. Chris tried again, carefully. It's like some sort of drug the power you mean no i mean all the muscles what being macho makes you go straight my own research would seem to indicate i mean maybe that's some chemical that goes with these particular muscles they're not just my arms palmed up are they replace my arms when i change your eyes are the same your teeth and hair are the same well Maybe your teeth are straighter. It seems that's not the only thing, either. They only look the same. The eyes can do all their magic stuff. The teeth and hair are bulletproof. Until now, I always thought it was the same brain in here. But, oh, what? You're saying being gay or not being gay is a brain thing? Well, since everything about a person is a brain thing, I mean... Not a mind thing, but something to do with the physical brain. You're saying being gay is about your glands, a pituitary condition. So, you're the same mind, the same bloke, but when that mind is in the Guardian's body with a healthy pituitary gland, all thoughts of faggotry... I didn't say anything like that. Well, good, because I've never heard anything so homophobic in all my life. Whether it is or not, it might just be true, like... even if it is how does this scientific explanation help this magical explanation if you want science heroes i want london i know i wonder if they're queero queer hero see what i did there (laughs) i wonder if he has these problems shall we call the raven phone and ask you said homophobic says chris suddenly oh what if that's deliberate I'm not past you shagging a woman on the roof of the Arndale Centre, so don't talk like we're into post-match analysis now. No, listen. I change into the Guardian by saying the magic word. We know the spell was created back in the 18th century. But why if whoever started this put in... design limitations? Oh, right. Because good magic is about natural things, noble things, heroic things, and not a bunch of fags like us, and that this is just you reverting to that... Oh, don't be... What? What? My boyfriend tells me that for the first time in ever, I've never, never fancied women. I started looking at blokes when I was nine. Everything I do as The Guardian, when I look back on it, feels like a dream I had. In this particular dream, it's like I was eating something I'd normally hate, like like broccoli, only in the dream I'm really enjoying it. I don't want to hear about whatever it was you ate. I'm thinking of packing my bags, I really am, because we can't go on like this, Chris. This hurts too bloody much. He got up and walked around the kitchen a bit, and managed, after a swig of beer and a deep breath, to get to the point. All right, when you're him, hmm, do you still fancy me? Chris closed his eyes. A very long silence, to the point where Jim was about to interrupt by thumping him. No, I don't think he does. Jim was about to... uh, He didn't know what he was about to do, but Chris got up and stopped him doing it, but put his hands to his face. I didn't know that, Okay, Not until just that second, when I was thinking about it. Because in all this time I've only been him for a few minutes here and there, saving people and fighting villains and stuff. And you haven't really had much time for dating? Listen to me. I still fancy you. I love you. Jim couldn't answer. I don't want to do anything to hurt you. Chris, everyone will have seen. And and everyone bloody knows you're him. What happens next time you become him and she turns up? Because I suppose you let her go. She she slipped out of his... uh, Well, out of my clutches. What happens? Well, he's a very moral person. He doesn't want to see you hurt either. He's just... He just can't be anything he's not. He doesn't do shades of grey. So he'll try to be not faithful, because he doesn't want me, but celibate. And eventually he'll fail. There was such quiet loss in his voice as he said it. So what you're saying is you're going to turn into him next time, knowing that sooner or later you're going to be unfaithful to me. Chris was silent, looking away. It's like ''You get drunk on a regular basis. Every time you say it's not me who's doing this woman, it's not me who's driving this car, you're right, you're right.'' Chris threw his arms in the air, admitting defeat. He slumped against the wall and looked out of the window into the night. Then he looked back at him. And now he'd decided. ''Okay, so I'll stop.'' ''What?'' ''I'll stop being him.'' ''I'll pass the magic word on to someone else.'' Jim felt suddenly more loved than he'd ever been in his life, and more guilty at the same time. He rubbed his fist into his brow. You'd really do that? Yeah? And the look on his face said he meant it. OK, great. Do that. Chris nodded, started moving, decisive as always. I'll call the coven and tell them to get the ceremony ready and start searching for someone worthy. Don't! Jim grabbed his arm. They sat down together, looking at each other, silent. I love you, Chris said again, meaning that he really would do this. And I love you too. They snogged for a bit found great relief in holding each other, knowing that they were going to stay together. But, Chris, are you sure about this? It's not just us, is it? You're very good at being the Manchester Guardian. Any new guy, it'd take him ages to get it together. Took you ages, didn't it? And in the meantime, who knows what'll happen? Who knows who'd come after Canal Street? Especially with all this publicity. It'd be a hell of a risk for you to do this now. None of that is more important than me and you. And besides, what choice do we have? Jim didn't know. They went back to Canal Street the next night, putting on a brave front. It wasn't quite like that Welsh village where they'd flounced through the door of a pub and then, under the influence of a lounge bar of stairs, marched to the bar like navvies. But it was close. Everyone was looking at Chris. Betrayed. Jim wanted to say to them that the very same night their representative hero had been with a woman, he'd also saved the whole street from a villain who'd never cared what damage he did to the people and property who suffered in this endless vendetta against Chris. And it wasn't as if this lot had unreservedly loved the Guardian lately, was it? They went into Manto's. Jim thought for a moment that the barman wasn't going to serve them, but he finally did. So this was what it had come down to, feeling that old nervousness about whether or not people were looking, in one of their own bars, in their own street. They found Hugh and sat with him. After a moment of awkwardness, offset by the sheer theatricality of how he played that awkwardness, he let them. So, he said, Chris... How was last night? The Guardian, Jim suddenly found himself saying, never said he was gay. He looks like he is, with all the rainbow flag stuff, uh, but he never said it. Isn't it enough that he protects our lot? He raised his voice so that everyone could hear. What, were any of you lot hoping to shag him? He would have gone on, but Chris put his hand on his and stopped him with a look. He might have said something else anyway. But from outside there came the sound of magic power crackling through the air. Chris looked like he might make an effort and stay put. But Jim gave him a shove. Go on. Chris didn't bother with trying to be stealthy this time. He just got up, without a look at anyone else in the bar, and headed out the door. Jim could feel people leaning over, craning to look out of the door, hoping to see the change. "'Don't wait up for him, like,' someone said. "'Jim closed his eyes and felt pride rather than pain. "'He was making a sacrifice, "'and he absolutely knew that Chris was too. "'Chris walked out to the water's edge, "'aware of everyone on Canal Street looking at him, "'waiting to see if he was going to change, "'and probably then shag a woman immediately. "'He looked up into the air, and there he was.' jumping jack he was stepping from sparkling magic disc to sparkling magic disc throwing lightning randomly down into the streets calling the guardian out not the murderous sort this one the kind of the fun kind of magic villain that mancunians most enjoyed his lightning just gave you a bit of a jolt lives were not at stake not this time he didn't have to change if he didn't want to but where would he draw the line? He'd vowed to meet every threat to this little community, vowed to stop every single affront, nasty or sporting equally, as the Guardian. The Guardian would do his absolute best not to be seduced. He'd probably succeed, now he'd realised his true nature, and wasn't being taken by surprise by a secret shame. That innocence of his was shored up now, prepared but that meant his other half shouldn't be his whole self. That he should deny an aspect of what he was. And wasn't that what he was all about defending? Chris kept watching Jumping Jack as his silhouette sailed past the moon, and then an intense expression came over his face, and he started to run in the direction of the house he shared with Jim. That night... All of Canal Street looked up from their pints to hear a very solid impact of magic villain with water and a subsequent yelling as magic lightning shorted out in contact with said water and lots of huffing and puffing as said magic villain was dragged up onto the side of the canal and sent packing. And there was a long wait after the battle was obviously over and Jim Ashton felt everyone looking at him with pity and contempt. Across the city, a pair of handcuffs closed onto the wrists of a surprised white candle who'd been only just about to leave her own bedroom window. "'I can get out of these in seconds,' she said. "'Unless you don't want me to.' "'I don't want you to,' said the Guardian, gently landing her on the pavement in front of a waiting van from Manchester Constabulary's Magic Division. "'And so you'll find, those being solid silver,' "'that you can't.' "'That was almost a joke. "'That's unlike you.' "'Well, making jokes is one of the things "'I'm looking forward to doing a little more.' "'She tutted at him as she stepped into the van "'like she was stepping into a limo. "'And I thought we shared something important.' "'We did,' he said, "'which gave me intimate knowledge of you. "'Enough to follow your perfume home.' "'He took her aside from the police officer "'in the back of the van for a moment.' Once you've served your time, hey, I'd really like to take you out to dinner. She looked boggled at him. He gave her a wink and hopped out of the van. He watched it drive away with a slight regret in his new heart. Late that night, Chris Rackham showed up at the door of that bar down the street that had tall Ben standing there judging people. Astonishingly brave of you to even try, he said. But no, of course not. We know all about your alter ego. Jim arrived and joined him. They stood there holding hands together. It doesn't matter, said Ben. What matters is what you're really like, Chris, when you're not lying to us. The Guardian landed beside them. Tall Ben looked between them. Oh, very clever, he said. Magic trick, is it? It's the truth, said Chris. And we're gonna go in now. And he led Jim into the bar. Tall Ben considered for a moment, and then didn't stop them. ''Well then,'' he said to the Guardian, ''do you want in and all?'' ''No,'' said the magic hero. ''I came to let you know you can still call on me for help. I'm straight, but I'm still the protector of this area and everyone in it.'' Ben sized him up for a moment and then nodded. I suppose it'll have to do.'' The Guardian raised an eyebrow at him and flew off into the night. What's the Guardian going to do all day, said Jim when they got home. What? Explore space, he says. Chris took the top hat from the kitchen table where he'd left it after using it the other night and hid it in the bottom of the wardrobe and get a girlfriend, I should think. He's all excited. He says he'll, it's like being alive for the first time. He says he always wanted not to change back, but thought it'd be oppressing me even to ask. Boo. Won't the top hat be able to reverse the spell, even if he ever gets back from the moon? I suppose that'll be something else for him and the Guardian to fight about. But if he puts us back together, I'll just beat him again and use the hat to split us apart again. Jim brushed his teeth and got into bed, and relaxed, properly relaxed, for the first time in ages, as Chris lay against him. Aren't you going to resent me for this, he said. Long term, I mean, you know, not being able to fly any more and that. It was always like a dream," said Chris, pulling him into an embrace. And we all get to fly in our dreams. This way, I get to be myself all the time. And from outside, they heard the sound of magic explosions, and they smiled. There you go. Don't forget,
1: copyright is Paul Cornell's. Let's like see, I'll try and get Paul on the show. And links to everything there are on the front of the website. This show has been a hard one to do. (laughs) Just on on me, Mom. Cuddles and chocolate biscuits and everything like that. Can I taste anything? (laughs) So, until next week, I'm off to bed. See you you when I see you. Good night from me.
0: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Solution Sofa. A battle procedure initiated. Shuttle set for us. Airlock will be
2: opened in 3, 2, 1.